Receiving with thanksgiving from 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 to 5 and this is part 7 in our series on 1 Timothy. So as we continue to study the, the first letter of the Apostle Paul to his young protege Timothy who was pastoring the church at Ephesus, we, we now turn to the second half of the letter in chapter, in chapter 4. So far we have dealt with the practical matters of the faith and that is the very nature of a pastoral letter to give practical advice as how to deal with certain situations, what to do, what not to do. With special regard, the reason why he, he wrote this letter, as we saw last week, is to give instructions as to people how they are to behave within the household of God, which is the church, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And so we have looked at some of the warnings and, and, and these continue through the letter. The warnings against the tendency to do many things but especially those things that lead you away from the fellowship which lead you away not only out of the church but away from the faith in Christ Jesus. And, and and then he says, these are the things that you need to do about it so that people don't drift away. So, first of all, let's touch in verses 1 to 2, a sad reality. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. We all know people, I think we all know people who at one time or another made a profession and walked in the faith with us. But now they have walked away. And it breaks your heart when you, you suddenly catch up with them or you suddenly they, you know, they request friendship on Facebook and, and whatever and you realise where they are at. They might still call themselves Christians but my name only. These are people who you might have gone, gone to, to church with, you know, part of the youth group. They might have been part of, of your, I don't know, brigades or Sunday school. But even, even part of the church music team. Fellow soldiers. People that you've confided in. You walk with. But now they have drifted away from God. We might be saddened by this, but it was already a problem in the early church. A real problem. I sometimes read and, and hear articles and, and conversations where people say, you know, we need to go back to how the early church was. And I started thinking with them, I said, well, what do you mean? Don't you think that they faced similar issues that we face today? Similar problems? What, what, what part of the, the early church are you talking about? Are you talking about Acts chapter 4? That, that in really crucial time where the church was founded? Because we know that by the time you get to the church in Revelation, there were many problems, good things and bad things that were already happening. And in 2,000 years of church history, there's been many, many ups and downs. 
So the, the, the issues that Paul addresses in his letters are very relevant for us today. So it's very important for us to, to pay attention to this because the Word of God speaks, spoke then and speaks today and it will speak tomorrow until the day that he returns. So what are some of the verses because the, that theme of apostasy or walking away from the faith is, continues throughout the epistles and the letters and uh, for example in Mark, even Jesus himself, he said, In Mark chapter 13, verse 22, he said, For false messiahs, false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders. And I say, what? Perform signs and wonders? That means that they're going to be doing miracles. And the people are going to go, wow. How can they? By what power? Well, not the power of God power of the evil one and 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 deceive what is the purpose of this is to deceive if possible even the elect those who have been chosen by god and then in in hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 we read see to it brothers and sisters that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from the living god I'm just giving you a couple of references. There are many more. Why does this happen? It happens because we're in a war. And in a war there are many casualties. And our enemy is is very cunning, very deceptive. And as we get closer to the end, before the Lord's return, there will be an increasing departure from the faith. That's what the Bible tells us. Jesus told us. And and, and notice here how the Apostle Paul contrasts the faith with all these other such teachings. The faith refers to the clear teachings of Scripture given to us by the Spirit of God. Those other teachings that contradict the Scripture do not come from the Holy Spirit, but from deceiving spirits. And deceiving spirits could be operating from the pulpits from Bible studies, from things that you see on YouTube and other places and say, wow, I've got to go there. I've got to receive that. How do you know it's true? Does it agree with the Scriptures or not? False teaching may, may have its origin in deceiving spirits and demons, but the enemy still needs human agents through which to channel this deception. No one in their right mind would give attention to a demon on a platform. No one would listen to someone who is clearly possessed or manifesting itself in front of everyone. Head spinning, you know, you've seen the movie. Demons don't just turn up in church with a name tag and saying, look, hi, my name is Legion and here are my buddies. Satan and his cohorts are way more clever than that. Remember how he used Peter to try and talk Jesus out of the cross. 
Jesus had to tell him, get behind me, Satan. He didn't say, get behind me, Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. Jesus could see straight through it. This is why demonic powers are, are camouflaged and, and, and use humans to do their work of deception. Sometimes it's very much out there, the, the stuff that Simi was telling us that happens, that's happening in Nigeria, that is very clearly demonic powers using human beings to do the work of destruction and killing. But here in a country like Australia and, and, and Europe and other places, there's a lot more deception going on. A lot more masquerading. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 to 15, for such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, Paul says, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then that if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Wow, look at him, how good he is. Look how many people are following him and listening to him. Wow. And their end, Paul says, will be what their actions deserve. And we have already touched on this matter of the conscience uh, in this letter and, and mentioned that it is an important guide. The, 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 that word conscience appears a few times in the pastoral letters. But as we have mentioned before, the conscience, our conscience is not an infallible guide. You know how they say just follow your heart, follow your conscience? Well, what if your conscience is wrong? Because of sin. Because if you continue to violate your conscience and you don't repent, your conscience becomes hardened or calloused. Paul calls it seared. A seared conscience is characteristic of men who give themselves to error. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me explain. When you're cooking a steak, you sort of sear it, you seal it on both sides, the top and the bottom, you hear the sound, that's you're searing it, very hot. Sometimes, accidentally, you put your hand on the plate and guess what? You sear your whole hand. No, that's not supposed to happen. So at, the first, at, at first, it's very sensitive. It turns red and might blister and all of that, but after a while, it get, becomes hard. And the harder it becomes, you, you lose the, the sense of touch and feeling because it's calloused. If you do that to your conscience over and over again, You become callous to, to, to truth. You don't respond to God through his word. And when somebody tries to perhaps correct you and says, you know, what you're doing, your behavior is wrong, he says, nah, you're going to oppose it. You're going to, say, you're going to resist because you, you're hardened. Your heart is hardened. That is what happens with the conscience. It loses feeling. 
loses touch with the word of the Holy Spirit. And also, you need to understand that an error does not start out as, as black and white because if you see something is wrong, then it's wrong. It, it's black or white, it's right or wrong. And we should be able to d- discern when something doesn't agree with the scriptures, when something is heretical. But Spurgeon said this many years ago. He said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is knowing the difference between right and almost right. You get that? It's not between the difference between black and white, but the difference between black and a shade of white. Or a or a degree, it's not quite there. But you, unless you, 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 you're sensitive to this, you won't pick it up. For instance, let me give you an example. If I say to you, the Bible is the Word of God and the Bible contains the Word of God, is there a problem in what I just told you? Is it the same thing? Or is there a difference? The Bible is the Word of God the Bible contains the Word of God. Is it black and white or is it a shade of right and wrong? Because you see, the problem is, if, if the Bible is the Word of God, it's all good. It's all the Word of God. If you simply say it contains the Word of God, then you, could, you get these false teachers who pick and choose verses and you say, well, this is a Sermon on the Mount and we're just going to focus on these particular verses that we we like. And these other verses, those condemnations, those stronger words, especially contained in the epistles and others that talk about sexuality. Well, we, we don't want to talk about those. So we say, well, that's not really the Word of God. This is the Word of God. It, it, it even helps you. It's in red letters or blue letters. These are the words that Jesus said. We don't like the other ones because, you know. So what's it going to be? And there's a lot of this going on, folks. A lot of it. Another example is, some of you here might be car buffs. You like like your, your car. I know we've got Peter out here. Now, if I uh, was to come to, to Peter and, and sell him, try and sell him a genuine car, it's all genuine. And he'll have a look at it, he has a keen eye, and he'll pick up on the fact that the cigarette lighter is not original. Right? The car looks, everything looks original. And, and, but he picks up on the fact that the cigarette lighter it's not original. That's a, that's a replica. And then he'll start to question and say, well, hang on, if, if a cigarette lighter is a replica, I wonder what else is within the car. You see how this works? Start to question. But you have to be trained to be able to, to see this. 
So unless you know your scriptures, unless you, you actually love the word of God and understand it, it would be very hard for someone like me to deceive you. And what happens to individuals can also happen to, can happen to a society as a whole, the collective. For example, if I'm sure that most people in government today, they know that a biological male cannot have babies, cannot get pregnant. We know it's not true. They know, we know it's not true. And yet we simply let it go for fear of calling it out and causing offence. We have come to accept and live with the obvious deception that is hiding in daylight for all to see. Sad, isn't it? We have stepped away from reality. I think the people in Nigeria still know what a male and a female is. Thank God for that, right? But somehow in Europe, in Australia, the US, we don't know what it is anymore. We have, what has happened? Because we have pressed, they have pressed our consciences with, with, a, with constant exposure and government legislation which works like a hot iron on our conscience and has been seared to numb us to reality. What happens when the judgment of God falls on us, just as he warned us in his word? Read Romans 1. And the fallout from this should be evident to all, as it is caused by deceiving spirits. That is the hand behind it. It doesn't matter whether it's Labour or Liberal or the Greens or whoever it is, a deceiving spirits are working behind it. And though most won't accept the cause, we know, we should know that it is a spiritual problem. It is a spiritual, a deeply spiritual issue. So it's a waste of time trying to argue these things from merely an intellectual perspective. You go back and forth with arguments and counter-arguments, but when you're dealing with spiritual forces, you're not going to get very far. And this is our challenge because we're engaged against real powers who are seeking to destroy God's church, God's people, but also lead the rest of society to destruction. At least we are aware of what is happening, whereas they are not. There's an old hymn that says, rescue the perishing, care for the dying, right? And that's the reason why he has called us to be a light in the darkness, because the rest of the world is living in darkness. 
The content, just the first part of verse 3, the content. So, this is, what was the content of the, mes- of the message of these uh, teachers, these false teachers in the church at Ephesus? This is what they did. They, f- they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. So, Paul then moves away, f- moves from the general warning about false teachers to the specific teaching that they pushed in Ephesus. These false teachers spoke against earthly things, institutions like marriage and certain types of food. Maybe all food, I don't know. They were trying to break life up into the physical and the spiritual dichotomy between one and the other. These people were not delighting in God and the blessings that he provides for us each and every day, but rather they have fallen into an outward form of religion in which they deny themselves certain things that were given to them by God. In his second letter to Timothy, the letter after this one, he describes, the Apostle Paul describes these people as having a form of godliness, It looks godliness. They look holy. They behave like Christians, but they deny its power. Now, Jesus used stronger words than the Apostle Paul. He called them whitewashed tombs, looking good on the outside, but dead on the inside. So you're probably, okay, you're probably reading this and say, well, what what is the big deal about forbidding marriage and and the forbidding of eating certain foods? And this is where the Apostle Paul is good because he could pick up what was behind these practices and got to the heart of their teaching. He gave an example. Perhaps it is for this very reason that in his letter to the church in Ephesus in chapter 5, he lifts up the institution of marriage. Marriage is like the relationship between Christ and the church. You know the passage. But the problem is that we're now godliness and relationship with God is merely to show, for show, in pretense in front of everybody else. It cannot last. It is hypocritical. It, it, it fosters hypocrisy and pride and, and leads us away from what God wants, and that is to please him from the heart, not merely from the lips. But again, I'll explain it from the wider context, that historically this was probably an early form of Gnosticism that Paul is tackling. And certainly by the time that John, the Apostle John wrote his Gospel and his letters, Gnosticism was already a major heresy that was infecting, was infiltrating the church, the early church. And the Gnostics, they claimed to be Christians, but they adopted a number of wrong doctrines, one of which was that all physical matter is evil and only 
the spiritual is good. Gnosis, Gnostic, they claim higher knowledge. Right? They said they knew more. But it was a wrong type of thinking. And this wrong thinking could lead them into two extremes. They, they, these extremes lead in opposite direction and they, they seem to be opposite, but they come from the same source, the wrong thinking. So this is because Gnostics themselves, they, they had all different branches. And, and they weren't uniform in, the, in their own beliefs, right? So one extreme of Gnosticism was legalism. And the other extreme is licentiousness. You can do whatever you want. So let me explain. Some of them would teach that since all matter is evil, we must control the body through asceticism. Asceticism is, is denying yourself certain pleasures like eating and even denying yourself you know, marriage and the benefits that go with that, like intimacy. At the heart of asceticism is a conviction that self-denial gets you closer to God. It can be very earnest, very sincere, but usually at the expense of the doctrines of grace. Those things that have been given to us by God. Because you see, whatever we try to do, we cannot earn our salvation. It is a gift. And there was a very big ascetic movement that followed the early church in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century. This is where men and women, they would go, they'd and live in the desert, they would join the monastery, they would join some monastic movement and just go away from society in order to get closer to God. And this happens. You know, you, you go through countries like uh, you know, Greece and other places, uh, there were monasteries everywhere, and right throughout Europe. It's very commendable what they try to do. Years later, around about the 15th century, in response to the, the Reformation movement that happened under Martin Luther in about 1517 and from then on, the, the Catholic Church sought to respond to the, the Reformation movement that was gaining ground throughout Europe. And so they set up the Council of Trent in the mid-16th century, in the, around about the 1550s. And the result was that it denied, it had a very strong words against the Reformation, the, the Reformation that taught that salvation by grace, is by grace through faith. That's the heart of the Reformation. And then the Second Vatican, which happened only about 60 years ago, Vatican II, affirmed the doctrines of Trent teaching that Christ's death was not sufficient for our salvation that we must also keep the sacraments and earn salvation through our suffering and good deeds. Can you see where this is leading? 
Can you pick it up? This is what most Catholics today believe. And I still hear the arguments. What's the difference? You know, Catholics are Christians. It's fine. But this is the core of their doctrine. This is the core of their belief. What's the big deal, Paul? What's wrong if people just want to get closer to God and, you know, work their way? Isn't that good? Doesn't it? Well, if I said to you, if I started preaching like this, unless you're here in church next Sunday, you're going to lose your salvation. And there are pastors that do that, right? I'm pretty sure the church will be full. Some of the people that, well, what? I need to go to church in order to be saved. But is that what the scriptures tell you? What well, is one of the signs of your salvation? But salvation is through Christ alone. You cannot earn your way to be saved. It is a gift of God from beginning to end. All the good things that we do are as a result of us being saved. Don't put the, the cart before the horse. For example, carrying on about this, but for example, um, when it comes to denying certain foods, the Catholic Church teaches that you should not eat meat on Good Friday. Heard about that one, right? I'm sure you know it. Because we honour Christ's sacrifice by denying ourselves red meat. That's, that's official Catholic doctrine, okay? But fish is okay. And this is the reason why the fish markets are packed on Good Friday or Thursday. Now, if you still didn't get the points, consider the push towards veganism today, which has a Hindu and Buddhist influence, which is influencing the West, okay? Where does all this push towards veganism, vegetarianism, where does that come from? And, and, And the war that is that is being waged against meat producers that that produce beef or lamb. For example, from 2025, the New Zealand government will tax the greenhouse gases that farm animals produce in order to tackle so-called climate change. Isn't that the same of denying certain foods? Isn't that what it is? And I hear this stuff from the pulpits. I hear people, Christians, so-called Christians, justifying, you know, not eating meat and we're going to save the planet and all of this. I'm saying, where does this come from? And, and these groups make their appeal in various ways. They appeal to the emotions. Some of them appeal to the intellect. Some to the will. But ultimately to the pride of mankind that somehow through our efforts we can control our destiny, we can control the weather, we can control nature. The central focus of all error leads to a denial of Jesus Christ through whom everything was created. And, And this is the key mark of deceit. And the other extreme 
I've pushed one extreme, that, that of asceticism, that of denial, right? But the other extreme is, is, is taught that since all matter is evil and only that which is spiritual is good, what you do with your body doesn't really matter anyway. So, so just do what you feel like with your physical body to your heart's content because that doesn't affect your spiritual well-being at all. You know where that leads, right? Licentiousness, right? And everything else that goes with it. Now, it's very interesting to understand the relationship between these extremes and how they have influenced religious practice over the years. I'm going to give you a, a great example. This is true. This is real. I'm not making this stuff up. Every year in South America, we have the La Época de Carnaval, the, the, the time of carnival. It's really big in Brazil and other parts of South America as well. It's been practiced for centuries, ever since the, the Spanish turned up and the Portuguese. So the, the season of carnival is, is between February and, and, and March. It's not an accident that in Catholic tradition it happens to be right before the start of the liturgical season of Lent. So this is the last big party where you can do everything you want, just let it all hang out and, you know, party hard before Lent you start getting serious with God. It happens every year. Guess what happens nine months later? All these babies are being born. And they're trying to find the father. But no. Good Friday, we're gonna, not going to eat meat. We have to denial because we're going to go to church. I have to confess. I have to get right with God. Easter's over and away we go again. The spiritual audacity is breathtaking, isn't it? That you can have a whole church pushing this stuff and supporting it. On the one hand, excessive debauchery followed by austerity, confession, and expectation of forgiveness from God. One can see the attraction of practicing your faith in this way. I wish I could do it. But my conscience doesn't let me to live like this. It shouldn't. It shouldn't be letting you live like this either. And yet whatever extreme you choose, whether it's debauchery or whether it's living the ascetic lifestyle, both, what happens is that they're both devoid of a personal relationship with the living God. It's all about external, it's all about religion. 
Neither legalism nor licentiousness focus on the inner righteousness, the, the true godliness that God demands of us. Now, God demands that all areas of life are to be brought under his lordship as a response to his grace, his marvellous grace, his amazing grace. And no, there is no separation between the physical and the spiritual. It's all one in that, in that sense that Jesus came into the world in a real body. He was born in a manger of a woman. That's the purpose of the incarnation, incarnate. He was in the flesh. He came. In a, a, he died in that body and rose again in a glorified body. The same glorified body that one day we will also inherit through him. And he demonstrated the goodness of God's creation forever. And now, in the Bible, we read that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit for which we glorify God. Our, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. That means they don't separate one or the other. So what is the antidote to this? Verses 3 to 5, the second part of verse 3 to verse 5. The antidote, and it says here, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. We notice how the Apostle Paul mentions gratitude twice in these verses. Always being thankful to God is a very, 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 very important practice that helps us to stay the course and not fall away. And we notice behind these verses a logical descending chain that we need to be aware of. Let, let, me, let me explain. It starts with somebody personally denying access to God's gifts. I'm not going to have that. I'm not going to eat that. I'm not going to do that. And by denying access to the gift, you undermine the need to be thankful for the gift. You see what happens? which then leads you to deny the goodness of the giver, who is God. And before you know it, you have walked away from our gracious God and the many blessings that he has already given you. Adam and Eve had everything their hearts could possibly desire in the garden. They only had one limit, the forbidden fruit. And guess what they focused on? forbidden fruit. Everything, everything. That which was out of bounds. And they went for it. 
What happens to us? You, you look around and you can see all of God's blessings. And yet, you focus on the things that are forbidden to you or things that you don't have or your neighbour does. You focus on that. This is why coveting, which is the Tenth Commandment, is so pernicious. Look up the word pernicious. It's something that has a slow effect, damaging effect. It seems innocent at first, but then like a cancer. You have a spouse at home and the gift of intimacy in marriage, and yet it is not enough. You have to go outside and look for the excitement because suddenly the media is telling you that you are missing out and your marriage is dull and boring. Have you heard that one? It's not exciting anymore. Before long, you take it out on God who you feel is holding out on you. There are many, many examples of this. I could go on. You start grumbling. And especially this comes, this becomes especially true when you're going through a trial, a difficult trial in your life. It could be a sickness, it could be a difficulty in your relationship, financial problems, whatever it is. And you start to take it out on God. You doubt God's goodness because that's, that problem takes away, it sucks everything like a vortex. All, everything goes in there and it spoils you. Apostle Paul says it is not that hard to, to handle these strange pressures and urges of the flesh within us. And it's done by cultivating the habit of thanksgiving. That is what the word for then, it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer means. It is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Consecration simply means to put something to its proper use. So to render it safe to use. Remember Psalm 103 verse 5, we we read it earlier on. The God who satisfies your desires with good things. With good things. This is why we, we, we shouldn't deny ourselves the good things within the boundaries that God has set. Consider what God had to do to change the traditional Jew like the Apostle Peter. He did it through a vision on the rooftop in Joppa. A beautiful seafront, waterfront uh, area in front of the Mediterranean. He was there on the rooftop and three times he had to challenge his misconceptions, his preconceptions through a vision. And in his vision, this is what he heard. He says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. I haven't eaten pork. I haven't eaten seafood. Maybe fish, but not, you know, shellfish and all that stuff. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. 
If you have food in your pantry, if you have clean water, I've been reminded of that from your tap, it is consecrated. It's, it's a gift from God to you. If you are able to have medical access and get your teeth checked, it is God's gift to you to preserve you. Be thankful. Be thankful. Everything God created is good. And we get this important truth from Genesis 1. Nothing is to be rejected as long as it is received with thanksgiving and consecrated to him. All of life matters and all of life should be lived for his glory. That means your family life, your personal life, your business life, your school life, your hobbies, your activities, your pastimes, the books you read, the music you listen to, the movies you watch, the way you spend your money, the way you take care of your body. Everything has to do with God. Or even better, God has to do with everything. He's interested in everything. And this is why, as I conclude my message this morning, I'll leave you with a verse. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all. Do you get that? Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And that comes from 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Amen.